Welcome to this afternoon's talk. Uh, this will be about diversity in sports media. Um, I know uh, our host will introduce our panel, so please give a warm welcome to Julie Humphreys. Thank you. Um, we are recording a live episode of our DNI Spy podcast at the moment, so you're all going to be on it. So if you ask a question and you don't want that to be included, can you please just uh, nudge me at the end? Um, I am very excited to host this panel because we have four um, legendary people who are going to pass on their knowledge to you. So first of all, uh, from, I'd say, this end is Peter Harding. Peter is the founder of Why Can't We? Uh, we then have Miriam Walker-Khan, who is a diversity inclusion reporter for Sky Sports News. We then have Emma Smith, who is a BBC sports journalist. And finally, we have Darren Lewis, who is the assistant editor of the Daily Mirror. He's a broadcaster also on CNN, Sky Sports and Talk Sports. So thank you, everyone, for coming to talk to us today. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, first of all, just to give a short introduction about yourself. So let's start with Peter, please. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Peter Harding. So I set up a campaign called Why Can't We? Uh, to raise awareness of disability sports in the media. If you open up the back page of any newspaper, I can guarantee you there won't be a single news story about disability sports unless it's the Paralympics or some other major event that's happened and the media have caught hold of it. So... What I'm trying to do is push the awareness of disability sports. It's something that happens all the time throughout the four years, not just once every four years. And it's something I'm trying to uh, improve. So that's uh, why I said, why can't we? And I've actually got to stand over there. So if you want to go and have a go, uh, a question I've got, which is, can you name a, dis uh, a Paralympian? Um, and how many Paralympians can you name? Try and have a go at writing it down on that whiteboard over there and stick it on there. Um, but please, yeah, come along and have uh, If you've got any questions at all, please come along and ask. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. And what's the prize? Uh, dignity. <laughs> dignity. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we all want dignity. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Miriam. Hello. Uh, my name is Miriam Walker-Khan. I am Sky Sports News' first ever DNI reporter, which is very exciting. Um, I'm only like three months into that role. And before that, I worked at BBC Sport for five and a half, six years, um, mainly covering women's football, athletics, Kind of unofficially being a, a DNI reporter on the side, um, and I kind of similar to Peter set up something called Brown Girl Sport, which is just like a platform to celebrate South Asian women in sport from all kinds of you know media, athletes, uh, marketing, just all sport. Um, and in a similar way that if you look at the back page of a newspaper, you probably won't see many brown girls or boys or men. Um, so yeah, it's kind of just. Uh, spark conversation and see who can celebrate that doesn't really get the recognition they deserve. Brilliant. Thanks, Miriam. Emma. Hello. Uh, so I'm a journalist with BBC Sport. I've worked BBC uh, since last August. Uh, worked in sports media for the last seven years or so. Uh, range of websites, uh, places, Daily Mail, Inside the Games, Goal. Uh, primarily working on football. Uh, now it's uh, BBC, um, again, mostly football, but also women's football but basically across any sport that he's doing i've never met a sport i didn't like so you'll also find me on the uh, darts coverage boxing this weekend uh anything i can get my hands on really <laughs> uh and also i've written uh several uh pieces on uh lgbtq plus inclusion in sports um features interviews and basically just trying to sort of um have that conversation in a way that's uh informative and respectful and uh uh yeah so that's my pot of history. Awesome. Thanks, Emma. Darren. Um, I work with you. You do. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> and you're always late. And I was grabbing your <laughs> own. Come on. I'm just saying hello to so many people. Like I'm so pleased here. to have so many people here today. I've been at the Daily Mirror for 23 years. Um, I've worked as a football reporter for probably, well, I'm still a football reporter. So all of those years I spent covering football, but also talking about us, talking about us as black people, as women transgender as lgbt as south asian women as disability and and also you know a big part of my job right here now is to listen is and people up because sometimes i've been to a million of these where we all get together and we talk about what's wrong with sport but how many solutions do we 
arrive at? And how often do we have the power to change the things we can? And right now we are a moment that I thought I'd never see in journalism because I started in 2000 and people didn't want to hear conversations like this. And now we're here with the power to change the things we can, with the platforms to change the things we can, with the people to change the things we can. So I'm here for a really positive conversation, but most of all to try and offer solutions, try and take back what we hear on the platform and from everyone here to the office, sit around the table with people like this lady over here, Linda Moyer, the head of creative diversity at Reach PLC, who's an incredible person and communicator and somebody who makes things happen. That's what we're here for. No more coming and telling our sad stories. Let's make things happen. And that's what I'm here to try and help with. That's what we're all here to try and help do. That's what you're here. Absolutely. And that's what you've been doing for that's a long cool. time since you've been in a job. So, yeah. I think I think you're absolutely right. So it's not a talking shop. It's let's let's see what we can do. And we've got some real change makers here amongst all of you. So hopefully you'll get some really interesting conversation going. Um, we're going to have two types of conversations today. We're going to talk about content within the media and we're going to talk about representation, so the workforces. So let's talk about that content first. Um, Peter, I'm going to come to you. Um, very simply, how would you describe um, how the media portrays disability in sport? Uh, I'd say first of all, it's lacking. Um, there's a lack of coverage, first of all. I'd also say that the coverage of disability sports tends to be a lot about um, the amazing, amazing achievements and how, oh, they've, they've got, got up and they've gone and won this amazing race and they oh, aren't the best thing you've ever seen. But actually, sometimes disabled people aren't that incredible. Oh, they've got to that and worship them because disabled people can just be really good at sports or they can just take on a sport and we need to get away from that sort of narrative of it being either inspiration porn or mm. that kind of oh they're not good enough kind of thing there's, there's always just two narratives and there's nothing in between they're not talking about actually how can we try and get more disabled people active what can we try and do to try and open up doors for disabled people to take part in sport um and then sort of celebrate the, the achievements of people in the right way and giving out the right messages. I think we're looking for those inspiration heroes. And, and I, I mentioned the whiteboard that I put up earlier on. I, well, the question I asked was, can everyone name a, um, a, a Paralympian? Most people, the first answer they put down is Tanya Gray Thompson. And I mean, yeah, she's she's a fantastic Paralympian. She's done a lot to for Paralympic sports, but there's also so many other people. And she retired a long time ago. So now we need to think about who are the next people coming through. And I can tell you that there's very few names that people can put out there on a piece of paper of someone who's up and coming and someone who in the future could be that Tanya Gray Thompson like figure. Um so I think we need to get away from either one aspect of it being inspiration porn or the other aspect of it being they're not good enough and so it's just not going to cover it at all. Um, so I'd say that's kind of the issue at the moment with that, with, with disability for child in the media. Okay, thank you. And, and so Emma, I'm going to come to you um, and ask a similar question about how trans people are and LGBT people are portrayed in sports media. Um, there's certainly an element in which um, it's like pe people are portrayed, it's portrayed as an issue. And often when you get um, discussion on particularly trans inclusion in sport, it's okay, we're going to discuss the trans issue or it's going to be a, going to be discussing a controversial topic. I think if you, I think the way that sometimes the media does that, it's it immediately sets the reader on the back foot. It immediately sort of sets you like, if, if you're always framing something as a debate as something controversial as something to be, you know, that one, like, this is almost sort of strange and different. You're going to get sort of the aspect of, you know, pe people are always going to sort of be a bit on edge when, when the discussion is there. And I think that sometimes what I try and do when I uh, cover sort of um, trans people in sport is sort of like focus on the on their achievements within the, within the sport itself rather than sort of the... Um, the sort of the uh, con the, the controversial aspects, the idea of sort of like um, you know rules and all that kind of stuff. It's like what sort of 
for example, I wrote a piece, about, uh, did an interview with a, uh, a table tennis player called Luca Kumahara, who's a uh, Brazilian uh, Olympian. Uh, he uh, came out as a trans male uh, last year. And it was basically an interview, obviously, about sort of what his sort of future are, which is to compete in Paris as, as, as male, but also about sort of the aspects of his, you know, his, his, his personal journey and about his sort of like his interactions with, um, you know, his, 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 his teammates and sort of their reactions. And, you know, it was, it was not so much about, okay, this is a debate which we need to be had and often quite um you know polarized terms there is also there is also ways of having this conversation and and you know covering these subjects that uh look at look at it in a, in a different way and i mean obviously you know it's it's a, it's a conversation that you know needs to be had is, is you know is ongoing um uh but i think that there's also ways of having it which don't necessarily need to sort of lead to po like you know such sort of quite toxic debate which in the end sort of like ends up with people being you know reduced down sort of like issues that need to be solved which i think that sometimes the media can be um a little bit uh can be quite guilty of when it comes to uh trans people in sport yeah i i think i agree and i see sort of comparisons if i come to you darren around you've been in in the game a long time many many years and i see comparisons around ethnicity and how black people perhaps were were dealt with in the media some some years ago to to where we are now. Talk us through the changes that you feel you've seen across the content then of when you're dealing with maybe ethnicity, for mm. example. The media industry wasn't built for people like this panel. It wasn't. It was built for straight white men. So the media, the sport, was struggled with, for example straight white women covering the gay in the late 80s and 90s. Um, it's always struggled with black men and women in the game. It's always struggled with Asia and then disability and, and LGBTQ was never even on the radar uh, because our society was never really accepting, never accepting of anything that was different from the norm. So for example, when I started covering sport in 2000, if I'd go to a, a football stadium, there was a racist incident. It would be the following day, because obviously we didn't have Twitter at the time or any internet that would be able to reflect what was going on in real time. The following day, when you picked up a newspaper, it was as though it had never happened. We weren't seen. We just weren't seen. And a lot of the issues that were addressed, I could describe it and then a white journalist would describe it and I would not be seen and the white journalist everyone would suddenly say oh my goodness they've raised an important debate here mm. and that if you kind of transpose that from me then this is Emma now this is Mim now this is Peter but I think what the difference is between them and now is that we are in a space where we can do something about it. We are in the organizations where we can do something about it. We are around the table where we could do something about it. And the way that all of these issues will be addressed is that we will be able to use our platforms to change these things, not just our companies. We all work for big companies, but also our personal platforms as well, our brands, our our social media platforms um, and to speak through events like this yeah something like this when i started was unthinkable because yeah. there just wouldn't have been the buy-in there wouldn't have been the interest um but just as the women's world cup and the success of the women and within sport the thing that drives the most engagement is success, regardless of what sport you're talking about. Mm. When people start winning, they see that there's commercial value in it, they suddenly start to buy into it. It's not driven by altruism. Mm. We'd like to think it was, you know, everyone woke up one morning and had a Damascian change of heart, but really it's commercial success. But here's the thing, very often, and I think a real game-changing moment with this was Raheem Sterling, who said, I look in newspapers and I don't see anybody who looks like me. And that was football's dirty little secret. 
put out to dry because nobody knew what to do. Then everyone had to address the fact that if it wasn't for football, they actually wouldn't know any black people. Mm. And that was quite embarrassing in many mm. respects. So um, football, sport, the media has had to look at itself over the next couple of, over the last couple of years, I'd say last five years. But that introspection is ongoing. And the way, and I, I, I mean, I pointed out Linda, but Drew is here from BCOMS, who has done incredible work to diversify the media with Leon Mann, Andrew Bontiff, and, and the superb team there who have people in every media newsroom in the country. Because they had to do it themselves. The actual media was never going to do it themselves. So it had to be the case that somebody basically said, let's grasp the metal. Let's do it ourselves. And now we have the people to change it. But we aren't just here to talk about how bad it is. We're here to talk about... No, and and I'd, I'd, I'd say that advisedly because you said to me, how has it changed? This is the point that we're at now. A point of, yes, we can kind of take the temperature if we like, but we can see that there are still more things that we can do mm. with. And we are in a space. Yes. So just a chance to jump in on, right. on one thing you said about... Um, the success, what you stories have driven on success. I don't necessarily agree entirely with that. I think it's, I think that's a big part of it. But I think that actually there's been a lot of success in the disability sports space. For example, let's talk about um, wheelchair tennis, Alpha Gordon Reed seems to win every single Masters possible. They win at Wimbledon. Andy Murray goes and wins Wimbledon a few years ago. And have a look at how many people were there to go and watch Andy Murray win Wimbledon. It was the talk of the time. Everyone was talking about it. Now, Alfie here and Gordon Reed, they also won Wimbledon on a number, number of occasions. And yet I can guarantee that people are thinking, who's Alfie Hewitt? Who's Gordon Reed? Because I wouldn't say that success is always driven. It's not always the answer because I think there's a lot of success actually within disability sports. I think the media needs to do more to look for those stories and actually bring them to life and find those stories. It's an interesting point, but, and it's a discussion point in a way, because I was talking with someone from uh, Basketball England, and he was telling me very similar stories about the success of basketball in this country. It's the joint second most popular sport in the country. Yeah. But I was explaining to him that if you think about horse racing and snooker and other sports, when the established stars of yesteryear retired and moved on, those sports actually worked incredibly hard to push the subsequent stars, the rising stars, to the fore and say to us, you have to be reporting on these guys. Yeah. It's a hand-in-glove thing. Yes, I totally agree. Media does need to do more. But media also needs to challenge sports to do more as well. Yeah. And, and, and if it is the case that there is that success, then somebody has to be banging down our door and say, we've got to come and cover this. These people, not because you're right. And, and, and the reason why I agreed with something you said earlier, there's this thing that people talk about, black excellence. Right? Yeah. You can just be. You don't have to be amazing. You don't have to be incredible. You can just be black. Yeah. It's okay. You can just be disabled, you know, or, or, or have special needs. It, it might or be neurodiverse. You don't have to have a superpower to actually be important. And I totally agree with what you said. For that to be the case then what we as media need to do, there's this whole thing that if you think it's all someone else's fault, it's normally your fault. And if it's, you, know, you think it's all your fault, it's normally someone else's fault. Yeah. Actually, the truth can be somewhere in between. And I think you make a good point that we do need to start to embrace the people who just play spoon. And it's our responsibility. I used to come to these things and see people who ran newspapers and be all on the defense. Oh, it's not, no, it's not coming in us. I am sitting here saying that I got to go back I've got to sit around tables. This guy here, Darren Wells, he works with us on, on Daily Mirror Online. We've got to have conversations like this. It's behind a new world. If you look around this room, we are in a new world. We're not in the old world of people being intransigent and saying, no, we know best. Of course we don't. We are here for people to tell us how we can be better. And if we can learn from that, then next time we come here in a year's time, you'll be talking about that success. Let's hear that then. Hey, absolutely. I think I'd like to bring Miriam into this Sorry, at the moment. No, 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 no. It was a really relevant point you were making, Darren. And I think let's think about how, from an intersectional approach then, that, that the media can support this and change the content. Yeah, I think just if, if there's anyone here who commissions things, I think a lot of the time 
is a journalist, you go and you pitch stories and it might be about like a South Asian woman. And like what you just both talk about, like a lot of the time you get told, yeah, we can't do that because they're not a Premier League player. No one's going to watch it. No one's going to read it. Um, and I think it's about making sure that we represent people properly. I think so many marginalised communities are misrepresented in the media and have been for years and that causes real like tangible problems in society. Um, so I think it's about representing people and showing that we're not just an Asian woman or a disabled boy or whatever. Like we are all different things and we can't just be labelled and put into boxes. And it's about showing people fully and not just shoving them into those boxes. And I think that is something that um, we had, like I was editorial lead for Black History Month for two years in a row for BBC Sport. And we kind of, we made a point of saying that we don't want to just do like stories about racism in football. We do those all year round anyway. We want to celebrate. We want to do stories on hair. We want to do stories on real history and how it's affected sports. And I think when you, and also on Parascore, on LGBT people in, in black communities, you have to kind of do it in a full way that represents that whole community. Um, and I think a lot of the time, yeah, if, if commissioners and editors are just sat there and they just want to tick a box, they'll just be like, yeah, we'll do that story, we'll do that story. But it's how you tell the stories properly and, and really show what intersectionality is. Well, let's come on to, sorry, Emma, you can come. Yeah, I mean, I was going to firstly of all agree with what Mim was saying about um, having sort of like put four stories, pitch stories. And I think that editors, I think certainly in the case of BBC Sport, are getting slightly better in, in terms of, okay, let's take a wider, wider breadth of, um, you know, sports and stories and sort of telling different experiences. And I think that that's certainly what um, online media can do. Because obviously, you know, you're not no longer sort of constrained by, you know, the the in terms of online media, the constrained by the number of words or whatever, or, you know, page space. And I think that if you've got this, you know, you've got an, pretty much an limited amount of space on, on a website in order to tell these stories, so why not? And why not sort of delve, delve a bit deeper and do, you know, different stories about like, you know, black people's hair and hair and sport and stuff like that. And it's, it, you know, tackle topics that haven't uh, happened previously. And I also actually wanted to pick up on something that Darren said, is, which was actually relating to Raheem Sterling. And I was actually working at the mail when Sterling put out that Instagram post. And it really made me think and sort of challenge myself because initial reaction was like, well, I've not written anything that I like, I'm never, you know, set out to sort of like write about him in a, dif in a different way than I would about a white footballer. But you look at sort of hit the point that he made and it's like, there is, there is probably unconscious biases in there that I have and that I need to challenge myself on. And I think that that's one thing that journalists in the media can do is challenge yourself and like, listen, to, if, if, if someone's from a, you know, a, a community like black or, you know, LGBT or something says, I don't think I'm being represented in this right way. It's, I mean, it's quite easy to say, well, I, I, I've, not, I've certainly not done that deliberately, but it's like to challenge yourself and sort of say, okay, Am I, am I saying, can you do this right the way? And are there things that I'm saying which aren't, you know, which I could be better with and sort of like, you know, that there are unconscious biases that I could be challenging. And it's certainly something that I've tried to do, you know, in the, in the, in the years since. And I mean, at the, at the time I wasn't, I hadn't come out as trans at that point. And certainly it's actually, I shouldn't have then in terms of the way that the unconscious biases can exist has become something that I've become even more sort of acutely aware of, you know, in the years since I came out in 2019. Um, but I think, it, I certainly think you're right in that it's something that, you know, the media needs to challenge itself on perhaps a little bit more uh, in terms of how it represents, uh, you know, di like diversity of views and diversity of community in, in its sports coverage. I think you're absolutely right. And when we look at that, that content and we look at it needs to be more diverse who's creating the content that's the question we have to ask and mm. are we seeing a, a sort of a workforce or a media workforce that is diverse or are we seeing it as a one homogenous group any thoughts on that i'm trying to speak out i think that that's what we're saying is exactly true because as someone who's got disability i i am very happy to talk about disability sports and I, i'll i'll Make sure everyone knows I'm a disability sports enthusiast to you know the end of the time. But I can also talk about sports in general. I don't have to just talk about disability sports. And I think 
We talked about intersectionality. We all as panelists here can probably write a story on a range of different subjects, not just about what we specialize in, but about any subjects. And I think often in big media organizations, we'll look at someone who has got a difference and we'll go to them and say, right, you can do that story. And I, sometimes I think, actually, I don't know why that's the case, because you should be able to do that story yourself if you're truly inclusive and you're truly understanding about a range of subjects. So I think intersectionality is a really interesting subject, but I think everyone should be able to look at themselves reflectively and say, am I doing enough? Not just in my own area that I specialize in, but in all other areas as well. Yeah, I also think there's, there's a lot of diversity, especially in massive newsrooms lower down. And then you get to like the top, the senior producers, the editors, there's no diversity at all in a lot of cases, or there are some women, some probably white women. And that's like, we're getting there slowly and we're starting there, like Darren said earlier. Um, but I think that makes things really difficult because if you're, what happened with me at the BBC, I was kind of brought into meetings sometimes the day after a massive racism story in football. And someone would point at me and be like, bring her into the meeting, she can talk about race. Yeah. And I just sit there in this room full of like posh white men that are all like 50 yard. And they'd be like, what do you think? And I'd be like, I don't want to say what I think in front of you all because I don't feel comfortable. And that is what it's like every day in those organizations. So unless you are really, really like making an effort to bring people from those roles into big editorial decisions, there's kind of no point. And if there aren't editors or people that are from those communities or like, real allies that can go and work with people properly and, and can tell those stories properly, there's no point. So I think it's about bringing everyone together and making sure there are like networks or advisory boards or anything that people can work together. Because we're not going to solve that issue overnight. Like there's not going to be, you know, 10 black, brown, disabled, LGBT editors in those roles overnight. So it's like, how do you use people from those roles to make things better? Yeah, it's what, and also it's not just about targets. It's about what what those people can bring to the roles and to the organisation, rather than let's just go and grab as many people as we can who don't look like us. Yeah, because there are some people that just don't want to talk. Like I have loads of friends who are, you know, Muslim or black or brown, and they don't want to talk about race. They they don't feel like it's their duty, and that's absolutely fine for me. Like I have to. It's my job as a DNI reporter, and I'm happy to do that. But it can be really draining and I totally get why people don't want to go and work in that if they experience their own kind of lived experiences anyway. So it's about, it's just about respecting people and listening to people and making sure that everyone is listened to equally, I think. So you're a DNI reporter specifically for Sky, yeah. And Emma, are you specifically a LGBT reporter for BBC or is it? N no, I'm uh, every sport reporter basically. My, my job That's title is journalist for BBC Sport, which is incredibly broad and you know about as broad as it is like one day I'll be on new shift then on boxing and then on football and to be honest that's actually how I quite how I like it because uh, certainly in the for, for a couple of years I was sort of like pitching when I was working at Goal um, I was a news editor but I pitched plenty of features and plenty of stories about LGBT plus inclusion in sports about trans inclusion in sport and I got quite a few good stories out of it. I managed to interview uh, Josh Cavallo. I managed to do uh, a big piece on uh, trans uh, on trans uh, phobia in, in football. And, in, in, and that was really good because it's, you know, you know, I've got a certain amount of um, uh, interest and sort of like certain amount of experience and contacts that I can make to, you know, tell those stories. But I think that now that I'm, and obviously want to keep on telling those stories and keep on sort of uplifting those stories, but also, I don't want to just be the, you know, I don't want to be the trans reporter. I don't want to be, that to be the thing that I do. You know, I want to, you know, I want write about, you know, football, uh, like family football or whatever. Like, and the fact, I think that sometimes if you're from a, you know, a minority group or whatever, like if, if you are trans, that you can end up sort of only writing about, you know, trans issues or if you're black you can only write about you know racism and sport and, and i think that there's a certain obviously you know i can sort of bring a certain amount of uh, expe uh, expertise in this but i also you know want to write about other things because you know i didn't get into sports journalism to just write about you know trans people i got into it to write about you know sports funny enough
and that's absolutely fair enough. Darren, do you have any comments on that? Um, I agree, basically, with with everything everyone has said. Uh, one of the things I, I used to say was that, and, and one of the things we're, we're doing at the Daily Mirror, as well as diversifying the workforce, uh, one of the things that we're doing is very similar to what Peter was saying. And it reminded me actually of an incident years ago when I worked on sport and a player who was playing for Newcastle United in, in, in Europe was racially abused and, and a news editor came over and said, can you write about that? And I said, why? Don't, are you against racism as well? Why, why would you want me mm. to write it? But that was symptomatic of the problem with newsrooms. As I said before, they were not built for people like us. They were built for straight white men. And anything different is a deviation from what they regard as the norm or normal. And so where we are now is in a place where we are challenging newsrooms to think differently and changing a culture. And what we're not doing is putting it on one person to be representative of entire, you know, hundreds, thousands of people. You know, your, your view might be different from someone else's view. Um, as a woman, as, as someone yeah. who's gay, as someone who's disabled, you know, you, you might have different needs, views, interests, uh, perspectives. So what we're trying to do, and, and the final very brief thing is this, sometimes it can be incredibly exhausting if you're the person that everybody is coming to, putting it on your shoulders to write about stuff all the time. And I don't just mean exhausting and the way people put it on social media but emotionally draining. Mm. And uh, we have a duty of care to people who work with, you know, our, our colleagues, uh, our friends even, to be able to be mindful of that. And that's what we try to do at a daily hour. Thank you. So I'm going to ask if there are any questions uh, from the audience uh, at the moment. So if you'd like to put your hand up and we've got a roving mic. We also do have a few questions um, Thank you. Hi, okay. Hi there. <laughs> right. <clears throat> so I think my first question is this. Do you feel that, <clears throat> in essence, Caucasian reporters, yep, feel, in essence, uncomfortable reporting on issues that affect someone of a different race or of a different um sexual orientation do you do you feel that that is that is a barrier that needs to be overcome as well in essence redefining what normal is and i'll be brief i i, I think they used to i definitely think they used to until very recently but i think a lot of the there are many times i've not been in the office and colleagues of mine have been very strident on wanting to challenge there was one particular issue for example when there was racist chanting at a game that i wasn't even at and my colleagues were, were deter we put it on our back page and the football association were really angry with us and my colleagues were like no we're going to stand by what we think around this and that was a great step forward in terms of the culture at our newspaper having changed and people thinking along the lines that they should I can't speak with everyone else at the other organizations, but my observation from the outside is that that has been the case as well. I would say, I think people are kind of, a lot of people at the moment are unsure when it comes to language about um, any, any marginalized community. And I think that is probably what's stopping people. It's not necessarily always that they don't want to write about things or talk about things. It's that they're worried they're going to get something wrong, which is then up to the organization to bring in someone to educate them because a lot of the time big organizations don't do that and it's up to staff and colleagues like their colleagues to go and educate people so i was at bbc squat on the bame i was like the co-chair of the bame advisory hate term bame but advisory board and it was us that were doing like the listening sessions the education sessions we weren't getting paid for that we didn't have any training to do that we were probably talking a lot of crap like we don't know what to do do you know what i mean so I think it's up to big, big organizations, especially with money, to bring people in, to educate people and, and give people confidence to write about whatever they need to write about because issues aren't going away. Like we're all going to have to learn to to get the language right around so many stories. So, yeah. I think the, the more, the more um, we try and get more people into the organizations, um, the more the stories are going to be better written and, and the more advice we can lean on because 
if someone's asking to write a story about someone who's disabled, for example, I'm happy to do that. But I also want them to be able to write a story as well. And I think that um, they can lean on me for advice. They might be able to ask me questions about it. That's fine. I'm happy to do that. But that should be for any story about anywhere at all. You know, if that's about LGBT, if that's about black history, it's about um, that, uh, yeah, women's sport, absolutely anything at all. We should be able to have an open conversation and say, actually, I don't feel comfortable with this and to ask for some help, but I want to learn and educate myself so then the next time I have that story, I can do it better. Um, and I think that the more people we get into the industry who are different to the normal white straight male, Darren was talking about earlier on, it's going to improve things overall in terms of the output of the media and it's going to improve our stories and it's going to improve kind of that recognition. So for example, tags uh, is something that is uh, also involved with, just to put another hat on my head there. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's trying to get, it's the ability group, ability group in sports and we're trying to get all of the disabled journalists together um, to offer out opportunities to say, look, this is, this is somewhere you could go and work and something, there's an organisation looking for disabled journalists and so here's, a, here's a, a group of people who are willing to do that. Um, and that's also the case, for example, with DCOMs, who yeah. have been doing some fantastic work in that field. Um, John Holmes has also been doing mm -hmm. some fantastic work with the LGBTQ+. Um, Emma, I think, for the uh, women in sport as well. So there's, there's lots of other organisations that are all trying to push for the same thing. And I think the more that we're getting heard and the more these sorts of panel events are happening and the more that we're having these discussions, okay. the more action is taking place and that is then going to change the narrative for us to write better stories and for those people who can't write a story about every subject, they're going to eventually be gone and they're going to have better people with better story writers. Absolutely. I think from my perspective, I mean, I can't talk on behalf of all the Caucasian journalists, but I can speak on behalf of a Caucasian journalist. And my view is that if I was asked to write a story about, you know, a Muslim sports person or a, a black sports person, I would treat that story in any other way than any other feature or story that I would write, which is that I would try and do as much research as I could and tr just try and be as accurate and respectful and, you know, truthful as I could be. Because I think that in the end, I think that sometimes journalists you can sort of be like, get a little bit comfortable and sort of like, like about things in a way that sort of, you know, makes sense and comfortable to us. But in the end, you have to treat every story, you know, particularly if it's like a major story, a feature or whatever, with the same amount of respect and do your research you know, get the facts right, you know, be, be, be respectful. And yeah, I think that that should, I think that's my, that's my view on whatever story I write. I, like I say, I can't speak for all journalists, but I think that that's, you know, a basic matter, you know, whether you write, whatever you're writing. Can I just make a very brief yeah. point about the advisory board concept? Because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of it, if I'm honest. And i tell you why. It gets people who do great work like you guys to do a second job that organizations should be paying outside people to do. Yeah. But it, what it also does is it allows companies to abdicate their responsibilities of actually employing in the upper levels that they should. So instead of getting somebody who like Emma, like Peter, like Nim, in the table, or in the room, around the table, they keep the same people around the table and they have the advisory board in the corner, mm. giving them the ideas that they can profit from, but they can jettison that advisory board whenever they want to and say, aren't we progressive? Aren't we diverse? Aren't we moving forward? And, and, and I think in a year's time, I'd like to think we'd come, we will come back here and look at all of our sports and see a better representation around that table rather than advisory boards. Too many companies are getting let off the hook because they have people sitting in the corner giving them the advice that they profit from but at the top of their sport, their organizations, their, their board, their chip. They're the same as they were five years ago. And that's yeah. not good. I think, we love Darren being controversial. Carry on, Peter. I think that um, the advisory boards, yeah, I agree with that. With tags, we're actually trying to get the same agendas into the workplace. And... Yes, organizations should be doing that. But similar to what you were saying earlier on with Leon, where you sort of get to that stage where you look around the, the, the workforce and think, there's no one like me. There's no one who's got a disability. There's no one who's 
um, LGBTQ+. There's no one who's female. There's no one who's ethnic minority. Therefore, where are we being represented? How are we going to have our stories being told? And that's where I think the work has to be done so that then we can create these groups like TAGS, for example, to say, right, here's the journalist, have a go. Mm -hmm. See, then I always have, I have a thing that I always do. If it matters to the boss, it matters. Yeah. So if you've got at the highest level, people having a, a conversation, yourself down, Linda, around the table at the Daily Mirror saying, why aren't we doing this story? You know, why are we doing that story? Who's, oh, I didn't know. Right, well, now you know. Let's do it. Yeah. But if, it, if we don't have that, if we're waiting to another meet, for another meeting of the advisory board in three weeks' time, the story's gone. Mm, I think the advisory boards are helpful. I think they can bring a lot of um, expertise to, to the table. Um, I, I think there is... It'd be, it'd be good to see in the future that we don't have to rely on advisory yes. boards. Yeah, But definitely. for now, we have to. Yeah, yeah because I think exactly. that, that's what it's about. It's, recruitment across the board has to improve. And and by that, and because and you're right, you know, to to, to you, this isn't decrying the the work of an advisory board or the impact or the commitment of an advisory board, but very often, the work that an advisory board does is it replaces the responsibility of an organisation to employ where it should. Yeah. Which is why, if you look at the numbers in terms of diversity at a lot of companies, have they actually improved? As Irwin was saying, they have improved lower down. Mm. They improved at the top. This is someone in the room ruffling feathers, annoying people and saying, why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? Actually not. They're relying on the goodwill and the hard work of the advisory board, as you say, who are bringing that expert expertise, probably not even getting paid anywhere near as much as they should, as the people whose mm -hmm. job it would be to change the culture of any given organisation. And that's why it's a big issue, that a, a, a big step forward that we need to make in terms of moving things on. Great first question. Thank you for that. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question then, please. Hi, uh, I'm Sam. I just wanted to ask, kind of linking back to what we spoke about before, about EDI work kind of being emotionally draining sometimes, especially, excuse me, um, being like from a marginalised background. I just wondered if any of you had specifically kind of experienced that burnout. And if so, how do you kind of balance that with the responsibility of feeling like if you're not pushing that kind of pushing those stories and doing that work then no one else might pick it up i guess sorry if that's a bit of a, a lengthy question i think it's a really good question um i think like what darren was just saying about like not getting paid things or not you know not even getting appreciated things that's where it gets quite heavy so i want I was working at Newsround when I was freelance and somebody from another part of the BBC called me at seven in the morning and was like, do you think we can write the P word in an article? And I was like, what? Like, what is life? Like, why are you phoning me? Like, it's seven, like, no, like, let's not have this conversation now. And that is when you're, you can't focus on your work for the rest of the day. You're like worried that someone's written the P word in an article. So that is really draining. I also think when you're, it's not just within work, it's working with big organizations. Like I've had um, quite a senior press officer before at a big governing body tell me that I'm not allowed to do stories on like the lack of diversity in sports because I'm not white and I'm too biased to cover those stories. And that things like that make you kind of question why you're in the industry and why you even bother because you know that stories are really important yet someone is there questioning why you're doing it. And that's because I was the first one to cover a story like that. But I think, yeah, it, it's like emotional burnout a lot of the time. And you have to, um, the only thing that's helped me is really having like a network of allies and amazing people surrounding me that I can go to. Sometimes it's to, to cry on their shoulder and sometimes it's to, to celebrate a win within work. So I think that's like a lot needs to get better and people just need to educate themselves. But yeah, I always say to people, get mentors, surround yourself with like amazing people and kind of get through it. No, I definitely agree with, with Mim then that you can sometimes feel if you're from, you know, a diverse, like a diverse group, you can feel like you have to sort of be that representative consistently. And I think in the end, I've sort of, like I say, I've done, did quite a lot of stuff almost like for a period ago, almost exclusively on, you know, LGBT inclusion in sport. But in the end, 
sort of realized, like, okay, can, I can carry on writing about that, but in the end, first of all, can't sort of like just put it on myself to sort of like be this uh, constant sort of like mouthpiece for, you know, trans people in sport or, you know, represent like what, whatever it's like. I've also got, you know, a job to do. And also, I think in the end, if you, if you want to sort of like be a sort of example for um, other like sort of like be, be an example of like, okay, the, me the, the media can actually be room, there is actually room in the media for people who aren't, you know, straight white men, as, as, as Dan was saying, you can do that just by doing your job and doing it well. And I think that, you know, I get you know, sent to cover like WSL matches, you know, big box matches, not because I'm sort of like fulfilling some kind of diversity quota, but because I'm, you know, actually fairly good at my job sometimes. And I think that sometimes you can sort of like have to sort of like take that view on it is like, you don't always have to be fighting or, you know, uh, like fighting for, you can sometimes be, you know, yeah, you know, advancing diversity in the media just by doing your job. And I think it's important sometimes to remember that and that you don't always have to be doing all the extracurricular stuff. It's a good, it's, you know, it's, it, there are some people who do fantastic stuff, you know, go above and beyond in order to, you know, improve the media, but you can also do that just by doing your job and doing it well. Um, I'd say I've experienced Brent a few times, um, but the reason I've kept going is because I look around me and I see people like this in this panel now. And I think if these people can do as amazingly well as they are, then why, why can't I do the same? You know, this is something that I've got to carry on pushing for. Uh, I think it's looking for those kind of role models and that, that inspiration to really drive yourself forward and go, actually, I want to be like that. I want to try and make this change. And therefore that's what I'm going to try and do. And it's that constant, I get kind of stuck in, in every single thing really really passionate about something i have to go and get it because that's that's what I, I want and so that's what i'm gonna go and get um and so yeah it, you can get burnt out and it can happen um but looking at those, the inspiration even just from today's talk and you're seeing all these people who are doing amazing things within the media industry and you think actually yeah there's still something to fight for and i can still carry on doing what i'm doing i'm still going to be as passionate as ever um and yeah there are some days where you go you know what, actually I'm, I'm struggling a bit here because I've had to try and do the same story over and over again. I'm pitching these ideas. I'm trying to get someone to listen to me and I'm not being listened to. But at the end of the day, you want to get heard and you want to make a difference. And if that's what your goal is, you'll go for it and nothing will stop you. I'll just say in 10 seconds that from my point of view, the, the, the being burnt out in the past was something I experienced, but I now take inspiration that I'm in a position that if other people are burnt out, I can help them. And that in a way is the objective. Eventually all of us will be in a position where younger people will come and say, I'm in this situation, can you help me? And we can, and that has to be a positive. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to ask one question just from the app, because um, I thought it's an interesting question. Um, how is the misuse and overuse of the word woke by news and media affecting coverage of diversity in sports media? Good question. Are we sick of being called woke? Good question. And do you know what? I, I'll start with that one because it, it, it's an incredibly powerful, strong issue. So the word woke comes from uh, the awakening, the, the realization of the injustices that black people were suffering in America. And it's been weaponized as part of a number of strategies by the right wing to undermine the fight for decency, humanity, um, uh, and just being a good person towards your fellow man. And uh, lots. And the the problem is, in some cases, people who don't mean to be negative use that word in a pejorative way. And for us, if we talk about what needs to be done, we are part of the media. This is where we have to believe in the power of our voices and use them in our organizations and actually push back when people use that word. We do have that power. And sometimes when you're in the room, it takes a lot to exercise that power. But we do need, because it, there's no point us saying, 
the media needs we need to live. We are the they. We are the media. Yeah, we are in those rooms. You know, and people look to us to make that impact. People look to me. People look to you, Julie. We are the ones who have to start saying, we've got all of these words that we have to stop using. Let's add woke to that word because to, to that list. Because if we can do that, we can start that pushback against the weaponization of a word that should be used in a positive way to inspire people and to make people aware that those days are gone. Yeah. And now this should be about how we are moving on together. And we must not allow that. That's such a good question because I felt it very strongly. And I think in our positions in the media, we have to pick up that baton. I, th I always, I've basically a very much shorter version than Dan, because Dan said pretty much everything that should be said on that. <laughs> but there's, <laughs> I, have, I, have I have two rules when it comes to news stories. One, if it use, if the word woke is used as a pejorative term, it's not worth taking seriously. And second of all, if it uses the phrase, if it's based on a vow on Twitter, that's not worth taking seriously because people will vow on Twitter about everything. Mm. It's like, that is not news. So I think that it's, you know, it's, it, 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 it's I think in the end, the pejorative use of the word woke in headline is actually quite handy because it shows that you probably shouldn't take this story very seriously. Mm. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> exactly what they said. <laughs> I, I, I agree with what everyone said so far. And that the terminology that's always happening, and there's going to be new terms that will come out soon. And it's our job, but it's the media's job, and everyone's job to challenge those terms and say, why is that not being used? Because actually, that isn't the right way to describe this, these people. Um, and I think that's the challenge that we have to, have to take on ourselves. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, huge thanks to, to all of the panel. Uh, thank you so much for the great questions and for being part of today. You can find us on Twitter. Our handles are in the show notes below. And if you've liked what you've heard, please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.